0: You are listening to the Empowering Indian Expats podcast. If you are an Indian living abroad, feeling stuck in an average 9 to 5 or a job or business that's not helping you reach your full potential, this is the podcast to tune in where you will find your role models and learn from their dream, struggle, victory stories. This is your host Asan Ali, a long-time IT professional living in Sydney, Australia. Who has made it his mission to find and unpack the stories, strategies, and life lessons of successful and inspiring Indian expats to help you and I reach our full potential? In this episode, I am bringing an interesting story of a very successful tech entrepreneur who came to Australia to pursue his MBA. Amir Kutub started his business with $2,000, which has become a 200 plus staff organization catering to its clients in four countries. Not only that, Amir is also investor in seven tech startups and is co-founder in four of them. He is also recipient of several awards, including Australian Young Business Leader of the Year. There's so much I could talk about him, but a lot of this information is there on his website. What I'm keen to understand is uh, while most students want to get a good job and build a career, what motivated Amir to build something of his own? I also want to know how exactly he started, how he found his first few customers, what services did he provide, and how did he scale up into a multi-million dollar enterprise. When I reached out to Amir the first time, I found out that he spends just a couple of hours a day in his business, which means he has set up a well-managed professional organization. So, let's hear Amir's story directly from him. Let's welcome Amir. Amir, welcome to Empowering Indian Expats podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Asan. Thanks a lot for having me on, on board. I'm really honored and delighted to be here today.
0: I really appreciate you coming here. Your story is inspiring, and I'm very keen to understand how you have done all these things in seven years and that too while you were still studying. So, uh, first question for you is uh, Is your success replicable?
1: Well, I believe, yes, it is. Like the paths are could be different. The journey could be different, but definitely it's replicable. Of course, what I one thing that I preach everyone is that you can't copy someone else's life and what someone else has done and just replicate it. But what you could do is you could learn some lessons from their lives and actually implement those learnings in your life uh, as well. But I was not given anything on a silver platter. I, I have worked my way through. I faced all of these challenges. And I believe that with the right approach and with the right mindset, anyone can reach to the level where I reached as well.
0: That's fantastic, Amir. Do you mind giving a perspective of uh, where your business is today?
1: Sure, absolutely. So we actually started Enterprise Monkey as a web and app development company, I think, in 2014 from a small garage here in Geelong, Australia. And then from there, we have constantly grown. And now we have moved into things like artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality. So all of the the new tech services, big data as well. And now we are actually serving some pretty big government organizations, uh, Fortune 500 listed companies as well, Australian stock listed companies, NASDAQ listed companies as well. And then we've got offices and and, and clients in Dubai, Malaysia, Singapore, UK, some clients in US, of course, in Australia and an office in India as well. So that was the the main business that I started. That's like uh, my sort of like core prominent service-based business. But apart from that, I started investing in other tech startups as well. So I co-founded around four myself and I invested in seven other tech startups that are at different level of their journeys. And... Recently, I've been working on my other way, venture, which I'll probably talk about uh, in more detail soon as well. So the way I spend my time is mostly because my, the way I built my business was so that it could run by itself. It doesn't need me. So Enterprise Monkey actually runs by itself. It is, it's, it's got a full process and cycle. It's all automated and delegated. And then I spend my time either investing on businesses or working on new projects
0: that's awesome Amir. you started all of those things way back in 2014 when you came to study did you come to australia in 2013 or 2014
1: i actually came to australia in 2013 i think i came to australia in 2012 like october 2012 and then i started my mba in october 2012 as well And then when I came to Australia, I started looking for jobs initially, but I couldn't find any jobs. I applied for around 150 jobs, but couldn't find any. So I started working as a cleaner at the Avalon Airport here in Geelong. So I was like doing the cleaning and things like that. Then I took another job where I was throwing newspapers in the night, delivering the newspapers in the night. So I did sort of these odd jobs for around one year before I got into an internship at a company called ICT Geelong. And in through that internship, I was able to convert that internship. And just working in that company in one and a half years, I was actually promoted to the general manager of the company uh, at the age of 25. And so 20, I served- 25? Yes, 25. <laughs> I served as a general manager of that company for one and a half years. And during this time, I, I, I actually founded Enterprise Monkey as well. So- I uh, helped that organization grow their revenue by 150%, improve their membership by 250%, and then left that organization to focus like my full uh, efforts in Enterprise Monkey.
0: So Amir, if you had not come to Australia, uh, would you still do what you're doing today?
1: A hundred percent, definitely. The one one thing that I always say is that probably the difference would have been is there are a lot of opportunities back in India as well. Just the difference would have been is that over here, I was free to pursue what I wanted to pursue without the judgment from the relatives and the societies and the families. Otherwise, very difficult to try something in India, especially when you've got friends and you've got relatives and everyone is a stakeholder in your life. So I think that is a, a big factor that would have inhibited like, inhibit my growth for some time that would have pushed me down a bit. But I think I would have pursued the same thing in India as well.
0: And how about the exposure? Do you believe uh, you got better exposure out here compared to back in India?
1: Yeah, yeah, I absolutely I did. Because when I came to, so for example, in Geelong, I didn't know anyone. So I started a meetup called Entrepreneurs Geelong Meetup and started networking with the people. I joined a lot of these meetup groups like Entrepreneurs Meetup in Melbourne. I started attending a lot of networking events and things like that. And just by meeting with the people and learning from them and learning from their mistakes and how they approach uh, the business, I actually, like my education did not help me in my business at all. It was all of that exposure and experience that I got by meeting the people uh, and which I believe would have, I would have missed in India, especially in regional cities, you do not have any exposure at all. So I was born and brought up in Aligarh, which is a small town where you do not have any corporate exposure or business exposure at all.
0: I completely agree with that. Let's go back to the day when you decided to start a business. What prompted you to start your own business?
1: Sure. So I think even before I moved to Australia, I had this dream uh, that I wanted to start my own business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Just I, I was not sure how to do it. I was not sure how, how a business runs, but just felt uh, very good to me. And one of the things that I I was actually doing from my college time was that I had this habit that when I whenever I would look at a problem, I will try and build an opportunity from that. So I saw in my university, there was no portal for people to interact with each other. So I created the first social network and that's like went a, a big hit and so on. So I always believed in this power of technology to, uh, to solve real world problems. And when I started reading a bit of books about entrepreneurship and things like that, I understood that this is what entrepreneurs do. They actually look at a problem and try and solve them with the help of whatever means they have. So that's why I thought that I would actually start my own business, where I could do that. Because before coming to Australia, I was working at Honda Cars as a production manager for one year. And one thing that I realized was that my skills and my potential was not fully utilized in that organization. I was doing my job very well, but my scope was very limited. Even when I tried to expand my scope, it didn't work because corporates have got a very tight structure in terms of the things that you could do. So that's when I realized that my skills would be best put to use in a venture where I could actually do all of it on my own and manage my own team and things like that. And that sort of pushed me towards entrepreneurship. So it was not the money, it was not the fame or something like that. I I knew about the failures, I knew that I might fail, but I just wanted to give it a try because I did not want it to end up living my life in a way that I I, I do not enjoy.
0: I, I completely understand that. So you are a mechanical engineer, but you have business in technology. So take me to the time when you thought, okay, I'm working too hard, two jobs, and am studying, I want to start a business. What did you do at that time?
1: Sure, so the very first thing that I did was, I actually, when I came to Australia, I applied for my tax file number as everyone does, but I also applied for an ABN, which is the Australian business number, which anyone as a subcontractor could actually get. And that's the very first thing that I actually did because I was keen about opening up my own business. While I was doing all of these for example when I was doing cleaning jobs I was actually listening to the podcasts all the times so just listening to the all of the business podcasts and things like that And I knew that I was doing these two, two odd jobs and things like that. But I had a very clear idea in my mind that I want to start my own venture. I want to uh, be an entrepreneur. I want to start my own business. I was just not sure what do I need to do? So one thing that one advice that I got from listening from a lot of podcasts uh, and, and reading a lot of books was that just need to give it a try and see how it goes. So I, that's what came to my mind was like, look, I'm already in a position where I'm like, I do not have a very stable job at the moment. I've left my stable job, came to Australia. This is the time when I could actually give it a try. And the worst thing that could happen to me is that I'll fail. If I fail, that's fine. I'll pick myself up uh, again and find a job. But this is a time, if I don't do it, then I'm going to regret it later as well. And I was actually working pretty hard at that point of time because I was doing two jobs. So I used to wake up, very uh, like at 2 a.m in the morning I had to go and distribute the newspapers then I had to go straight to my uni sort of come back and then try and establish my business or try and meet clients and things like that so when I used to reach home it was like already 11 p.m and I had like four hours to sleep or to eat so I used to skip my dinner <laughs> and I used to go uh, go to sleep and uh, it what? was pretty stressful
0: it's it's very tough what you just explained is uh, it's very difficult to even comprehend how would somebody even think about doing one more thing Yeah, coming on starting the business yeah. so you already had registered uh, what services you decided that you will give and how did you go about finding your first customers
1: sure so my MBA, in my mba one thing one of the, the subject that we discussed was business process management, which is more about looking at the businesses existing processes and saying how we can actually optimize these processes with the help of technology. So I thought this is an interesting one. And I'm looking, started looking at small to medium enterprises and saw that there was no service or no consultant would that would actually help them with that. And there were a lot of things that they were doing unoptimized or wrong. And just by introducing a small piece of chain, a small piece of technology, we could help them increase, like save their costs or increase their revenue. So that was the first service that I actually started reaching to small to medium enterprises where I would say, look, I'm going to look at your current processes and look at, I'm going to look at your, what are the gaps? What are the problems in there? And I'm going to optimize those processes and automate their processes with the help of technology. And I started reaching out to clients, uh, like not clients, like prospects and started reaching out to them in trains and buses and like everywhere I could find them like cold calling and things like that. And, but initially I did not get any clients, but what I did was I then started that I will ask, started asking that I'll do everything for free. All you have to do is just give me a chance. And then finally I got a chance from there.
0: And what was that first
1: work? Okay, so the first work was a pretty interesting uh, one because it was uh, with a wheelie bin company uh, that was actually delivering uh, repairing bins for the, the city council. And the problem that they had was that, that all of them, the, the note-taking and management was all manual. So they were doing it all manually. The drivers were doing it manually, then bringing and to the office. Then office was entering it in spreadsheets and emailing it to the city council. And the city council was filling it all. So it was like they were facing a lot of errors through that and some of the errors costed them around five thousand dollars a week the, the council was not happy because council was getting a lot of calls as well so we ended up developing a mobile application for them for the drivers we ended up placing qr codes on the the bin so that they would scan the qr code that this bin has been repaired it would automatically update the database at the, the bin company but also update the database of the council so it actually saved them around $20,000 a month and also helped them increase their customer satisfaction. And as you well.
0: did uh, everything for free for them because you wanted a customer to start Well, we,
1: I said that I'm going to do everything for free for them. But just by when I came up with the solution, he was extremely happy right. with that. And he's decided to pay me for, for that. And he actually paid me like a good amount for that because I was saving him like $20,000 a month thing. But yeah. we, we did not enter into an, any agreement in the beginning. But at the end, I was actually paid and for it And did that. you
0: do all these things on your own, Amir, or you hired some contractors?
1: Okay. So I did the, the consulting part on my own. I came up with the solution on my own, came up with the architecture on my own. But with the for the development of mobile application, I am not an app developer myself. So I actually contracted someone to develop the app for me. So
0: when you say you did the design architecture yourself, where did you get that knowledge? You were a mechanical engineer.
1: Okay, so back in college, I actually, when I decided to develop the social network for my university, that was the first time when I learned a bit of coding and learned a bit of architecture from there. And then I was always doing these passion projects where I was actually developing the solutions. So for example, when I was working with Honda cars, they had a problem where all of their processes were paper-based, documents were not there. So I developed a documentation management system for them as well just by using scripts from here and there. So I had that understanding of how the architecture is going to work. Didn't have any formal knowledge about that, just learned it all from the internet.
0: That's really nice. That's very interesting. So uh, this is a very good um, takeaway as well. I mean, many a times people think, oh, if I wanna do that, but I don't know enough, or I don't know much about it. How would I go about it? So as an entrepreneur, the idea is not that we need to know everything. We need to be able to assemble people or get people who have the expertise. But if we can front end the customer you know, get the buy-in and do the high-level work in front of the customer, I think that's all is required. And behind the back, we can always get expert resources to get things done, isn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think the biggest gap is understanding the, the problem that the customers are having, understanding their needs and then translating them into a solution. That's the biggest gap in the market in every industry. So if you can learn to do that, then you will be pretty good at everything.
0: There's another question that's coming in my mind, Amir. Whatever you are talking about, you were doing it when you were like 24, 25 year old. Where did you get that the confidence or the courage to go and approach people and, you know, Get them to agree to work with you. A lot of people, even in thirties and forties can't do it.
1: (laughs) All right. So I think it relates back again to my college. So what happened in my, like when I started engineering, I was pretty lost because I was not very interested in mechanical engineering. And in my second year, it was like my marks were low and my teacher was scolding me and things like that. I started participating in extracurricular activities and that actually helped me realize who I am again. And that's when I started my social network and I came up with the idea because my college didn't have a college magazine. So we said we are going to put uh, publish a college magazine, came up with the whole concept, went to the college for funding, but college didn't have any funding. So instead of complaining about it, we went out and reached out for sponsorships. But when we went out for sponsorship, they said, where's your presentation? Now, we didn't have any idea about what is a presentation or what's a pitch tech. So we learned all of that just for the, the sake of getting that sponsorship. So I had that sort of experience and exposure a bit while I was actually in my college. And that gave me the confidence that if you give it a try, things might go wrong. And I have had instances even in the college where people would just push me away or shoo me away and things like that. And I had same instances in Australia as well. Like when you are looking at it, looking like a very linear story where I pitched to a client and I got successful. But the fact was that I pitched to 200 clients before I found my first client and I was getting rejection, but I had this habit that with every rejection, I would just get feedback and improve on it. And I was very, um, and I'm a very, like very rigid person. If, if I want to do something, if I want something then I want something. And I've become a bit shameless about it as well.
0: You you gave a lot of uh, inputs right now, Amir, which are the uh, main ingredients of being successful. So You talked about how to utilize college days. Don't just study and pass the exam, but get involved in communities and the clubs, uh, uh, which really help. And then you talked about being rigid, which is being rejection-free, uh, not only in entrepreneurship, the way the whole employment also is changing today. Uh, it's all about you selling to your potential employer. It's no That's more somebody will give you a job and you'll retire in 30, 40 years. And those things mm-hmm. are gone. So um, becoming rejection-free is very important where it's not about somebody is rejecting me or you. It's they're rejecting the idea. And as you very, uh, you know, succinctly, you said, every rejection gave me a way to improve and then I went back. So, and did you read uh, Richard Branson at that time? He also started with magazines. So to me, it looked like you got inspired <laughs> from there. <laughs>
1: Well, it's funny, like when you start reading uh, a lot of entrepreneur story, it feels like that they all are talking about the same things, like five or six basic things basic you know, fundamentals the, 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 yeah yeah, it's it's all the same its although it feels like a cliche, but i it actually works like. These are very basic, simple things that every successful person would tell you and you'll say, ah, it's the same shit. But the thing is that people do not internalize those things and people do not practice those things. So if you start practicing those things, then everything else becomes like pretty easy as well. So yes, you're right. I actually uh, read about Richard Branson as well. I have been following Elon Musk from a very long time, from the days he left PayPal and he was about to start uh, SpaceX and Tesla and things like that. So those are the guys that actually uh, definitely inspired me as well. And
0: we are in the best time uh, on this planet Amir. Uh, when I was graduating I pre- I didn't have that much of access. I could probably buy second hand books uh, you know that's about it which I did but today it's uh the world is the small village you can have access and understand anybody and everybody it's all available on uh, internet so but yeah applied knowledge is power not just knowing is power so that you very oh, clearly said that
1: <laughs> oh absolutely 100 percent. look i have seen throughout my college and through my mba even in my workplace i see people who are more skilled than me people who are more knowledgeable than me people who are much more talented than me as well if and I would not even be able to compete against them. But it also comes about how much, like, first of all, being being shameless about what you are doing, how much grit do you have to keep failing and trying again as well? And then applying that knowledge, bringing it all together, that True. makes a difference.
0: True. Fantastic. I mean, let's... Uh... Break your seven years into milestone, if if that's okay with you. So you started and the first project you described, what was the next milestone and if you can just go milestone wise, because it's very difficult for somebody to comprehend, a student starts a business with no customer, somehow gets a customer and today he runs a global business, runs on autopilot mode there's a lot goes into that there's a leadership aspect of it hiring aspect of hr the finance the there's so many aspects of it and uh, as you went along you built some of these skills and probably you got mentors as well i don't know how that the whole journey has been so can we start with first milestone and then go through this maybe four five six milestone in the next 15 minutes or so
1: oh absolutely sure so i think one of the interesting aspect of these seven years is that all of them are actually somehow connected to the previous thoughts that happened in my life as well so it's somewhat like Slumdog Millennial where there would be <laughs> some in my life back then and I would be utilizing them over here so one of the books that I read uh, while I was in my college was uh, the was it five hours work week by Tim Ferriss for four hours Work, four week, hours work yeah. week. yes four hours work week by Tim Ferriss and that had a huge impact on 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 sort of my thinking and I, that's when I actually decided that if I start my business, I'll set up a business like that only where I'm able to delegate a lot of work and automate a lot of work. And I actually read that book like multiple times, like 15, 20 times. I've been like using that as manual. So when I uh, got my first client, I looked for the second client and third client. But one thing that I had clear in my mind was that I did not want to set up my business as, a, as an agency or I did not wo- want it to work as a consultant. I wanted to set up a business that would be able to work on its own, that would have its uh, own scale and things like that. So uh, that's when I started talking to some of the the, the people who were running big businesses, asking them for a coffee, reaching out to them, and understanding what makes a business uh, successful and scalable. And one thing that I understood was that it was mainly the processes that you put in place that would actually help your business grow. So what I uh, started doing was that, I started writing the process manual for everything that my business would be involved in, and actually I started hiring a team. So uh, even when I had only one or two clients, I hired four people initially and I actually hired them in India because I could not afford to hire people in Australia at that point of time. And was a team of, uh, there's one person who was the, the technical uh, person. And the second person was from the mar- marketing background. And the third person was from the, the accounts background, accounts and administration. And the fourth person was from a bit of sales and marketing background as well. And I actually got, and they were pretty young people as well, because I couldn't again afford to very experienced people. Some of them were, were, were actually just starting with their career, but a very nice enthusiastic team of four people. And so I would actually put, push any technical work to the technical person and then work with the marketing and salesperson to set up a marketing system. The problem with the service that I was offering was that there was small to medium enterprises did not even know that they had that problem. So first we had to educate them about the problem and then we had to sell them the solution. So Which means you had to come up with a lot of content that we would produce to educate them and then uh, do that. So. I actually learned a lot of marketing and sales and marketing and sales automation on the go. And the objective, again, was not to just get one sales. It was not about generating leads. It was about actually setting up a system so that we could generate leads automatically as we move forward so that we could scale. Similarly, with the technical person, the objective was to actually create processes in such a way so that we are able to deliver a project quickly as well. And for after, apart from those four people, I actually use a couple of contractors. But the way I worked with those contractors was that we are going to work, but it's going to be on an hourly basis. It's going to be on my terms and my conditions. You have to follow my processes and things like that. And uh, so the marketing and sales team started like uh, through the marketing and sales, we started reaching out to more customers and, and marketing and putting the brand out. Whereas with the technical team, we started working on the projects and delivery and so on. And it worked pretty well in the very first year. So, in the very first year, we got around, uh, say, 20 clients with like big ticket clients. And so,
0: they were all in Australia,
1: India, or mostly in Australia. So, it was mostly in Australia. We had two from uh, uh, Malaysia at that point of time, but mostly in Australia. And in the first two years, It went really well and I started growing my team from there. So from four people, we were 16 people with two people here in Australia as well. But what happened, like started happening after that was that everything started to fall down again. So my cash flow was uh, in distress. So it was like my invoices were delayed. There were a couple of clients who went bankrupt and they they owed a huge amount to us. So that went straight my customers started complaining because earlier i was involved in the process now it was the business was expanding my team was involved in the process so the, the process started breaking up so my customers were not happy i started owing people money and like just within 3 months went so terribly bad that i was in actually a debt of 100000 dollars and also I, I was not able to pay the the staff i was not able to uh, pay the, the the supplies and things like that and that was a pretty stressful moment for me because that's when i thought i have probably done the wrong thing i'm probably not uh, fit for entrepreneurship and so on and i actually went into anxiety and depression because of that but and at one stage i thought of actually quitting because I was 27 at that point of time and I was like in $100,000 of debt. Like that's huge if my- (laughs) stressful. It is. That was 2017, right? So it would be, yes, 2017. Okay. Yeah, so if my father would hear about it, he would sort of, (laughs) you know, like it's just uh, very stressful, right? So we, because my family wouldn't even have seen this much amount of money (laughs) in Mm -hmm. one go. It's like, it was a big thing for me as well. And like lenders and debtors were calling me in the morning. It was pretty stressful. I just you know couldn't get out of bed and things like that. But then I thought before I quit, I at least I should figure out what went wrong. So I logged myself in a room for a couple of months and say, okay, I'm going to figure it all out. I The business sort of could run on its own for these two months, but I need to figure it out what went wrong. And I started analyzing everything that was actually going wrong and what i figured out was first of all that because i do not have any financial background and i am pretty bad with finances i was not i was looking at the 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 innovation part of the 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 business i was focusing on growth but i was not focusing on the profitability and cash flow so that mm-hmm. was one thing the second thing is that there was a lot of gap in my processes again because my business had grown to a particular stage and there was a gap in my customer journey as well. So I did the full user persona mapping. I learned new tools like customer journey mapping, things like that. I again, talked to a lot of people who who are like my mentors, like some of the mentors like Scott Brown, who actually helped me look at my business from this bigger picture because I never had run the business. I never had a CEO experience as well. And my business was growing. So mm. I started looking at all of those processes and uh, understanding what went wrong. And then I re-engineered, restructured my business. I changed my, for example, my revenue model initially was invoice space. I changed it to a recurring revenue model. I changed mm. my payment terms and things like that. I started vetting my clients. I was trying to get all of the clients. One thing that mm. I mm. understood was that you don't need to have a lot of clients. You just need to find a few clients and serve them really well. Mm. So not everyone is not your customer. So I changed my marketing approach. I re-engineered my business and like almost relaunched my business from there. Mm. I actually fired 80% of my clients and I said, look, we can't work with them. Because it's too painful or things like that. i said, we have our terms and conditions have changed as well. Our pricing has changed as well. And I sort of repositioned myself in the market. And I think within six months, we were able to pay that $100,000 debt. That was pretty good. And we came out pretty victorious from there.
0: That's incredible, Uh, Amir. One thing uh, coming in my mind, when you talked about the early days, you hired young four staff and uh, one of them was on marketing. And you said small businesses were not really aware about these process gaps. So you had to create content to educate them. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. How, because if I have to create content, it kind of a uh, pressure on me. How can I create content every day? So how do I source content? What did you exactly do in creating consistent content? And for how long did you do that?
1: Okay, absolutely. So the thing is that, as you said, you have to educate the customer about the problem and the solution. That's the most important thing. And now is the time of the disposable content where people would see something and they will forget about it and you have to produce something new as well. so what I did was I actually through the, the, the marketing person, I set up a thing called content repurposing where I would actually record say one big video or one one big lecture for one week and so that would consume my two hours one hour preparing and one hour actually delivering that. And then my marketing person would actually divide into smaller pieces of content, like seven small videos for Instagram, seven small videos for Facebook. They would write a blog out of that. They will convert it into audio, publish a podcast out of that. So we were just using, because I was busy doing so many things. So I was actually producing one piece of content and then my marketing team was extracting it and converting into a video, audio, and and, and actually written content for different mediums. That's it. It's actually uh, Gary Vee. Uh, yeah, I was thinking Gary Vee.
0: about Gary V. The moment you said, I was thinking of his 33 uh, pieces of content with one.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I did not even, I just took Gary Vee's presentation, sent it to my teams like, this is what I want. Uh, wow, that's fun.
0: I really like what the way you have done it. And how about you yourself creating uh, two hours or one hour of content each week? Where were you sourcing those content from?
1: Well, it was actually mainly from the conversation that I was having with people and understanding the problem. So my whole business idea came out by talking to the people, talking to the business owners, asking them, understanding what was the problem that they were facing. And each piece of content was focusing on one problem. For example, one problem was one piece of content was on consultants on and how they can productize their service in terms of consultants had a problem that they were trading in their time for the money and they could increase their hourly rate, but they had a limitation. And that's when I started asking them, why can't you productize your service? Why can't you turn it into a membership or a course or an app or a piece of technology and things like that? And so I was actually looking at taking those conversations and coming up with the content around those problems that you we were solving.
0: That's incredible. What is impressing me, Amir, is the, all the information that everybody has, you have those information too, but you have actually applied it, utilized it. Everybody has uh, awareness that Richard Branson has this book. Everybody knows Gary V is uh, sharing his content every day. Uh, but I I don't know, most people are not really taking it and applying it and you have done it so well. And even the Team Ferries book, uh, I haven't applied that well. When you said you read it 20 times or so, I was thinking I have read it once or twice but i don't think i have applied it enough so good you know very good uh, let's come back to you when you revived in 2017 after uh, that crisis uh, what's the next level of evolution in your business how many people were there and how did you go about growing this large team and how did you man- manage where did you get insight into being that leader who could uh, you know lead a large team because you already faced that problem where it started to all you know uh, get out of control but in these two months of research and talking to your mentors, now you have a, a renewed energy and ideas of doing it differently. Take me through the next stage of evolution.
1: Sure. So one thing that I did up after that was I actually, apart from creating processes, I actually created uh, reporting for each and every department in my So I identified the department I said, okay, these are the departments. So we've got a marketing and sales department, we've got an administration department, and we've got our customer success department, which is our technology department. And I actually created processes for each and every part. And that's something that I actually did myself along with the team members. Secondly, I developed a lot of reporting around it. First of all, made sure that everyone was connected to the technology, each and every data that was actually being captured. And then we set up a a set of reportings that I would review, like almost some of them on a daily basis, some of them on a weekly basis, and some of them on a monthly basis. So instead of just picking up the call and talking to my people and trying to manage the team, I was actually able to visualize everything on my phone. So I could be anywhere, just open the dashboard and see exactly what's happening, what uh, in my team, how are we achieving our target and things like that. And we were having pretty structured meetings in our company in terms of these were our target, these were our KPIs, where are they and so on. So that actually helped my managers orient their vision and focus very clearly as well. And that helped me manage the, the big growing team as well, because now I had a full visibility of what's going in my business. And we had three simple rules. Can we automate something that we were doing? If we could, we would just automate it. Otherwise can we optimize it if you could, and then we would optimize it. Otherwise we would just delegate it to someone. So making sure that I was not doing anything actively in my business. I was out of the business. I was just looking at it from like a bird's eye view and seeing, okay. This is my dashboard and uh, this is sales, marketing, everything. Where are the red flags? Okay, here's the red flag. I need to work on this red flag. And this is how I still operate any of my business at the moment is that I look at the bigger picture and see, okay, where are the red flags that I need to work on? And I just look at that. And the question that I ask is pretty simple. Was it a process failure? Like, was it that the process was not followed? Or did we have, like, was our process not right? Because if something is going wrong, it could be one of
0: these two things. That's right. How yes. about the people issues? The biggest issue is machines don't talk, machines don't have emotions, but people, different issues. So when you have a large growing team, and especially you were young, and I'm guessing some of your managed managers would be older than you. Did you have uh, some people issues and your own internal dialogue of uh, how to deal with this person or what do I do? Did you have those early days issues?
1: Right. And uh, one of the, I think adding to that, one of the added challenges was for me was there were some people that were actually I was involved with or I was managing, or either my friends as well, uh, I was very close with. And some people were like pretty close in terms of in, in, in family as well, mm-hmm. who were pretty much elder to me, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to manage that decorum and I had to like still manage those expectations while actually managing the business as well. And that's why I I have always been focused on the figures and and the processes itself in terms of being uh, respectful of the people that I'm actually working with and but talking about few points. So the problem is that whenever you're managing people, if you uh, talk to them about three or four things, then it becomes challenging. For example, for my delivery manager, the person who is responsible for the delivery, I have got Uh, sort of three simple things, like I just want to make sure the quality is right, the cost that I'm spending is is right, and the delivery, the time is actually correct. So I would only talk to him about the QCD, like quality, cost, and delivery. And whenever he would come up with something, I would say, how is this thing going to impact the quality, cost, and delivery? And I would tell him straight away that these are the things that are non-negotiable for us you could do anything around uh, that and that's fine for me. So if you actually focus on those pinpoints and give them a very clear KPI and clear direction, that helps inform every decision as well. And then I had instances where people would have conflicts with, with each other and I would just go in and I'd say, I'm not interested in who did wrong or what, what has actually happened. I'm only interested in understanding, did we miss a particular part of process or is it that the, the process was not there? so it's not about humans are there they will make mistakes but the thing is that the process and the checklist and the auditing and the reporting are built in such a way that humans are there to make mistakes but the systems are should be in such a way that those mistakes are caught and does not have an impact on the business
0: true very true did you do you also have formal audit like external audit when you said audit
1: absolutely because we do actually we have we are an ISO i also 27,001 company, which is uh, a security uh, compliance. But apart from that, we have got external auditors who come in and audit our internal processes as well.
0: So you have a pretty robust process-based organization, which has a very high market value, if it is.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because nowadays, my my sales people, when they talk to the clients, all they have to show is just a process handbook. And they will say, okay, whenever clients would ask, you know, we have got three Uh, potential suppliers why do we want why should we work with you they'll just open up our process handbook and ask your other suppliers if they have got a similar robust comprehensive checklist for delivering what you need so we have got a very clear roadmap in terms of if someone wants needs to make a coffee how would someone make a coffee like very simple and simple things and very complex things all are are really well defined and all are measurable as well
0: Got it. Very nice. So very well-defined organization which can uh, be easily transferred. Uh, as an ownership, it can easily be transferred. Absolutely. And these are the kind of company which really sell for very high value in the market just because of the process and the structure. Nothing more than that. So coming on 2017, when you revive, yeah. what was the next milestone? So first, your first goal was just revive, get the money, the 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 debt out of uh, my site and then start to Uh, grow from there so what was the next stage of uh, growth uh, amir
1: so the next next focus was mainly on the growth and uh, profitability of the organization so we uh, moved to a more of a recurring revenue model and then we also started productizing our services as well so although some of the services we were offering were on a consultancy basis but we started productizing our services we started producing internal products as well and then we started looking at uh, new markets as well and one of the markets that we identified was the the funded startups market and we started working with a lot of technical startups and one of the approach that we actually followed was some of the startups that were really good idea we would actually vet them and then we would, instead of taking the money from them for the development, we would actually take equity from them for the development, mm. and that's how I started investing in the 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 tech startups right. as I move forward, and then actually using the solution that we were. Providing to startups and pitching these solutions to larger organizations. That was pretty pretty cool because large organizations would generally have their own technical team, but their lead time to do even a simple minimum viable product would be two years. Right. we would go to them and say, we'll, we can actually do the same thing for you in three months. So the ability to provide them an extension of their team in a more agile and, and scalable way. And that's when we started expanding to different markets. So also expanded to Dubai, then UK and US and so on. And one thing that we also did in around 2019 was that instead of actually just having an office, because we had an office in New Delhi and we had an office in Malaysia and Dubai. So what we did was we said, rather than just restricting our workforce to a particular office, we'll just keep it open so that anyone from, anywhere around the world could actually join our organization. They don't have to come to the office. They can work from wherever they want. And so we like almost took everything that we were doing like completely 100% cloud-based. We even banned Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel and things like that. Said, you know even if you have to use a notepad, use a cloud-based notepad. Everything that you are doing for Enterprise Monkey it needs to be on the cloud so that no information is actually lost and all information is accessible 24 seven.
0: That's fantastic. So where all uh, your new employees came from apart from these countries that you mentioned?
1: Okay, so we have got a sort of couple of people from Nigeria that are actually working with us. And then we have got three people from Philippines uh, as well. We've got people from different parts of India, even South India, Bengaluru, Hyderabad. Of course, we've got an office in Delhi as well. And then now we are also having uh, a lot of people from rural India as well. And uh, that has been an interesting development. That is one of the, the passion project of mine as well, where I'm trying to bring a lot of people from rural India and actually educate them and also bring them into the organization
0: that's so nice and uh, how are people reaching you uh, for job are you publishing on your website or how are these people from nigeria or philippines got in touch with your organization
1: so it's mostly through mostly through linkedin and then we would definitely publish jobs on all the job portals and things like that we've got our own job portal as well but generally mostly through linkedin
0: okay Okay. Couple of thoughts running in my mind. One is the productizing word that you used. You used in couple of contexts. One, when you were helping the tradies productize their services, then you yourself productize. That's a very um, powerful idea, which uh, I think entrepreneurs know these days that they have to productize at some point in time, otherwise they will not be able to scale. Right. But in employment world, <clears throat> excuse me, in employment world, nobody understands, and that's why we trade all our eight nine hours, and then we start from zero the very next day. Do you want to give a little bit of insight into productizing? Very powerful concept.
1: Sure, absolutely. So the way I look at productizing is that even if you are offering uh, a service, if you could actually package that service where there's a very clear entry, there's a clear starting point, and a clear end and you could put either a package or a price to it, then what you are uh, doing is you're actually rather than... The problem is when someone is hiring someone to provide a service, they don't have a very clear idea of the the cost, the expectation and things like that. But first of all, if you actually package that into something that's actually defined, that's one part of productization. The second part of productization is that The problem uh, with a lot of consultants, especially out there, is that they would trade in their time for the money. So they would do the same thing. For example, if we are uh, uh, providing IT consultancy, we would provide the same consultancy again and again and again to multiple people. So for example, I worked with one of the, the consultants who was providing consultancy in the governance space. So they would go to different boards and tell them how to actually run their boards. What they ended up doing was they ended up use, utilizing their knowledge to create a pro a cloud-based system where board could go in, the board members could go in there, create their profile, answer a series of questions, and then they would get recommendations based on that. And then they could enter more documents into it and they could get further recommendation based on that. So it's about using your human knowledge and the things that you are repeating again and again, and then using the power of technology and artificial intelligence to actually replicate those things for you. So that it just becomes pretty easy.
0: This is, uh, I don't know if this is the right question, uh, but I just want to validate this thought here, Amir. You talked about consultants who are on their own. We have a huge risk for employee community all over the world right now, the way the business landscape is changing. Are you able to see if employees can productize their service in some way?
1: Well, absolutely. First of all, one thing that we all need to realize is that the world is changing to a gig-based economy. Yeah. Right. And more and more companies and people are willing to now actually work with gig-based workers. So people who are provide you could call them freelancers or people who are willing to provide those services on a one-off basis as well. So first of all, all employers need to be ready for that. Secondly, one thing that I did when I went into ICT Geelong, I started as an intern. And my first job was that he actually gave me uh, a database that was actually there in their website. And he said, what we need is we need this database converted because we needed it in our membership management system. So what you have to do is you have to manually input all of the files in Excel and things like that. That was my job as an intern. I could have done that internship very well. I could have created a very beautiful Excel file and get done with it. What I did was I went to the general manager then and there and I said, look, the work that you have given me, I could actually finish it in three days, but I could actually create a system so that you do not have to engage someone to be able to do that. And he smiled at me and is like, okay, if you can do it, do it. And I said, look, I would need access to the following things. And what I did was actually connected all of their three different system, integrated them together so that they do not have to do all of that manual work. So I almost replaced myself (laughs) with an integration that I built and I went to him after three days and he said, that's great. You have done a great job, but now you have done your work. What are you going to do now? I knew that he will ask me this question, but I was ready with the other things in his organization that I could actually help him improve. So right. that's how I got my internship converted into a full-time job in three days. And mm-hmm. that's why I rose to that general manager position in one and a half years, just by creating the right system and processes as well. And that's one thing that I am always encourage my employees to do as well is how you can productize or automate the work that you are doing so that you can work at a more strategic level as well.
0: I think people may have a little bit of fear as well. And
1: also the thing is that if you are scared that your job might not exist, then be pretty sure that someone else would anyway, bring that solution that's and right. your job would cease to exist anyways. So. Yeah, so
0: job is temporary anyway, whether you <laughs> you like it or not. So no, yes. that was a good insight, Amir. Now, it, this seven years of experience and prior to that, uh, you have done as an employee also, even in college, you did, uh, you've did. you been passionate about technology and uh, business. In a way, you have learned uh, as you went along. Uh, you had setbacks and you came out of that looking back anything you can visualize uh, that you would say you know what these were the things that I would do differently
1: well if I would start my business from now from the scratch and now I I keep on doing that so I keep on working on different projects I do it very differently now because when I went into the business it was pretty random as well although I did a bit of market research but one thing uh, that I do uh, when I start my business is I do not first of all invest a lot of energy and money into it, I start with a minimum viable product a simple concept and test it into the market and see whether it's going to work or not. For example, if I have to, I've currently launched a product called Mentor Monkey, Mm -hmm. but the way I've launched it is that I've not spent a lot of energy and money building it. What I'm doing is I'm doing it in phases, smaller phases, just by launching a part of it and testing it in the market. And Mm -hmm. as a part of that, the idea was that we'll create a job ready certification course. So I did not spend six months developing the course curriculum and hiring uh, someone to develop that course and developing the technology for it. I actually started by putting it out and saying that we are going to launch this course. Is someone interested? And then people would put up their hand and we will ask them, okay, what do you need in this course? It's about developing the product or the service with the customers rather Mm -hmm. than, for the customers and that's one of the biggest mistake people come up with amazing solutions say oh i've got this amazing idea it's going to make millions no it's not because you have to start from a problem perspective or need perspective you have to understand what customers need discuss the solution with them develop a very basic minimum viable product test it with them and le- and develop it iteratively with their feedback
0: that makes sense so when how do you decide how much is uh enough for an MVP?
1: So for for me, something that like I do a business model canvas, this business model canvas is actually available on our website, mentormonkey.com for free. You could go and download from there, but business model canvas would give you different assumptions that you have to have in terms of your customer's value proposition, things like that. And my business, my I decide what are the things that I want to test in my business model canvas. And my MVP would be, uh, should be sufficient to be able to test one of the hypotheses in my business model canvas. So for example, I'll give you an idea. If my business model is around, okay, I'm going to uh, publish a course and I'm going to sell that course. So rather than actually developing the course in the first go, what I'll do is I'll actually check and test. I'll start with a survey and test whether people need that course. How much are people going to pay for that course and things like that. And also what I'll do is I'll get people to register for that course before I actually build that course. So mm-hmm. in terms of building that course, what is the minimum our product? It's actually zero because I have not built the product. I've actually mm-hmm. asked people to register for the product first and then I will build the product with them. And now the people don't, In terms of the the course, what is the core problem that I'm solving? I'm actually helping them impart some education. Now, I don't need a fancy learning management system. I don't need a very fancy assignment system, things like that. Something that could actually impart that education.
0: Mm. No, I got that. I got that. So rather than trying to create a solution, be problem-focused, connect with potential customers who have that problem, validate it, create an MVP, Kind of sell it before you build it, and then build along with the customer. So that's fantastic. I think that's the best way to do. Now we have come to the end. Uh, Amir, couple of quick questions for you. So it's been an interesting journey for you, and uh, you have already talked about uh, your influences. Like you read Richard Branson, you're a big fan of Elon Musk. You followed Gary V. You talked about four-hour work week from Tim Ferris. Uh, locally in Australia or in India, did you have uh, uh, mentors uh, uh, who um, you got support from?
1: Absolutely. So especially locally in Australia, I actually had a lot of mentors, even in the Geelong community as well. So for example, Scott Brown is, is one of my coaches and mentors. He's he's run several different businesses, not in technology space, but in landscape space. And now helps me with the strategy. Then I had some people like Nick Stanley and sort of my former employer at IHT Geelong Craig, who has been really helpful as well. But the thing with me is that I'm like a knowledge seeker and I would actually learn from each and every one. So I pick brain f- uh, of a lot of my different clients as well. And I learn a lot from them as well. So it's like a constant journey for me. I would just catch up with coffee from someone and I'll just learn from them as I move forward. And in terms of the people who really inspired me, I think, again, I look at a lot of TED Talks and the videos and then go through a lot of books and understand what people are doing and learn from them
0: any book in particular apart from four hour work week that you talked about
1: there there are quite a few books one is uh, actually i think it's called grit by angela duckworth yes. and it talks about the it talks about the most important thing uh, that it all comes down to is that persiv- persiv- perseverance and, and sort of like just uh, making sure that you stay on the course uh, when everything falls apart because i feel that's where entrepreneurship like you would learn the trade and art and things like that but for you to be able to learn that, you have to go through all of those failures. You have to like really break down. You have to go through all of that emotional and mental challenges and financial challenges as well. That's right. And that's only you can learn entrepreneurship. There's no course in the world that can teach you. In
0: theory, it's no It's not theory. So definitely, you have to go through that. And in terms of uh, Amir, see, I've asked you a lot of questions and. Uh, on live, I'm guessing it's mostly uh, youngsters, millennials, and of course, when I take it on the podcast, there would be different uh, demography of people who will listen to it. Uh, is there any question uh, that I should have asked, especially to help millennials?
1: I think you actually ask a, a whole lot of questions, <laughs> but I think it's uh, one of the one of the challenges that I still see with millennials is that. They like, they feel that they want to do a lot of things Our people are a lot more passionate now, but they say, we don't know where to start. So one, one of the that I tell them is that you don't, you will never know where to start from as well. And there's no right point to start. And there's no right knowledge level to start. Like you can start the, the best way is to actually start from today itself. Now I do not encourage people to just leave their nine to five jobs or leave their education or whatever you still have plenty of time, even if you are studying, even if you are in a job, and if you want to say start an entrepreneurship, you still have plenty of time, sleep a bit less, watch a bit <laughs> less of Netflix, you know, a browse internet, uh, browse your mobile, use your mobile a bit less, and you will take two or three hours out. And if you just start doing that, that's the best way to learn anything. Like rather than actually people said, can I do a course? and look the courses are great but the way i do a course is i would start with a project first and once i'll start doing that project i'll learn on the way because Mm -hmm. that's the best way to learn something rather than actually doing the course first and then implementing it i start implementing something and when i need it then i learn it on the go
0: that makes a lot of sense and thanks for the message amir that's very valuable and that's applicable for people who are at different stages in their career and life, it's not just for millennials. So, what's the best way for people to connect you if somebody wants to reach you apart sure. from your company?
1: Absolutely. So, you could actually connect with me on Instagram at Amir Kutub. You can uh, search me on LinkedIn and connect with me over there as well and you can actually join me on our social learning network which is mentor monkey you could come and connect with me and other mentors over there and i've got a lot of free resources a lot of things uh, that i've come up with over there so you could actually access on, that me-
0: on Men- mentor monkey social platform that you have yes, developed
1: that's right so it's a mobile lab as well as uh, it's a website mentormonkey.com
0: i'm already registered there it was lovely talking to amir and uh, your story is inspiring and Uh, You gave a lot of insight into uh, business, uh, which I would not have got otherwise from your website or every other place. So thank you for your time and thank you for all the insights.
1: Thank you uh, for having me. It was extremely nice talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Empowering Indian Expats podcast with your host Esan Ali. Hope you enjoyed the story and got some inspiration and lots of learnings. I learned so much. In fact, I'll be listening to this conversation multiple times to internalize all the learnings. For me, systemization was my key uh, takeaway. He Amir got inspired by Tim Ferry's book, Four Hours Work Week. Most importantly, he applied the knowledge. His ability to learn from others and improvise as uh, he went along was another lesson and something that I wanted to keep in my mind. Bouncing back after 100k of debt was another key highlight for me, how he went about doing it. Let me know what were your key takeaways and uh, do connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm reasonably active out there.